Grief Stories is not a crisis resource. Please seek support from a qualified professional in your area to meet your unique emotional and medical needs. You are listening to the Grief Stories podcast. I'm your host, Maureen Pollard, a social worker with an interest in helping people find hope and healing when someone they love has died. In each episode, you'll hear a real person sharing their story of loss and the insights they have gained that help them on their journey with grief. At Grief Stories, we're helping grief make sense one story at a time. Today's guest is Devorah Enton, a licensed clinical social worker specializing in maternal wellness and bereavement care in the Orthodox Jewish community. Hello, Devorah. Welcome to the Grief Stories podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's such a pleasure, Maureen. Thank you for having me. So this um, conversations that I'm having these days on the podcast um, in, involve conversations with other professionals like you who work in the field of bereavement. And we're talking about myths and misconceptions and how we can help spread the word more about what's real in grief. And today, you and I want to talk about the idea that there's a point where grief ends or that this idea... Um, exists that you can get over grief. And uh, so I want to begin with just asking you, so, so what are some of your thoughts about the idea about whether grief ends? I, I think it's such an important, it's, to me, it's almost like the foundation of grief work is what does grief work or the grief process or the, bereave, the, the grieving or the bereaved process look like in the long run? Because like, I need to know what I'm, what am I getting myself into? as uh, you know, as a person who is grieving, what is this going to look like for me? If I can anticipate what this will look like, can I plan for what this will look like? I need to know, especially if you know, you're dealing with people who are very type A, you know, I need to know exactly how to do this. Tell me exactly how to do it right. I'm going to get it done and I'm going to get it done perfectly. And I think that's one of the hardest things about the grieving process is the awareness and the knowledge that, first of all, that's going to look different for everyone. And second, that there isn't an end point. There isn't a space where now I'm done. There isn't this space where it's over now and I'm okay, or everything is back to normal, for sure, that's another piece of this, or that I am, I'm fine, I'm fine. And I think that coming to the knowledge, and, and, and for many, it's something that they fight. Like, it's like, I, I, I don't wanna be feeling these things forever. Um, and so coming to terms with that and coming to an awareness can take time and support until they get to that space of understanding that this grieving process will shift and move and adjust over time, but that it's a very personalized experience and it doesn't end in the way that they might have imagined it being over. Mm-hmm. I, I think you're, you're right. You hit on so many important pieces of this idea. And the, the first for me that resonates really is that it really is different for everyone. And grief is also different for every person's in, you know, different losses. So the sense that grief is one thing that happens in one way in an order is really unreliable. It's not true. And so we have to be able to be more flexible with grief. Yeah, and I think about that on a very specific level. For example, a specific idea would be something where um, I work a lot with women who have lost a pregnancy or have lost a child right before delivery, right after delivery, miscarriage, stillbirth. And what I have learned is that for many of these women, the idea of surrendering their grief, 
the idea of letting go some of the intensity of their grief feels very, very um, disloyal, feels like a betrayal to the child that has died. So some, for some person, they want to be over it. And for another person, they don't want to let any of it go because they're in such a complex place of this grief is what's connecting me to the child that I, that I have lost especially because I may not have had time to create memories with this child. I've never had the opportunity or experience to create these happy, joyful memories. Um, and so all I have is maybe the baby kicking inside of me, but I don't have anything where this child was a living, breathing being that I got to play with and nurture and attach to. It's a different experience for them. So the grief becomes that connector. And so they, the idea of, of moving through grief for that parent might be a little bit different, differently complex for a person who has experienced a stillbirth versus somebody who has lost a parent at the age of 85, mm-hmm. right? So it's just that talking about that unique pathways of grievers. Right. And because the relationship is grief when the baby's born exactly. still or shortly after, that's the only parenting relationship that they know is to grieve. And so it can be really challenging to consider this idea of of letting that go. Um, and I also feel like the other piece is that um, because um, when we lose, you know, we sort of expect to lose our parents at some point in some capacity. Um, that's kind of what we consider sometimes to be a natural order, right? And to lose a baby is out of that order. It's not, that's not the way it's supposed to go. And so we don't have any space to uh, make sense of it. We always have this absence of the baby. Absolutely. What I find interesting also, and I think it's important to note here that there is work that can be done with someone who has, um, lost an, in a, a, a pregnancy or a, a baby in utero, that there is work that can help them focus on eventually on what that mothering was like for them while they carry that child to come back to the memories of the baby kicking or the baby moving or being a pregnant woman or bringing a pregnant parent, right? So those are the kinds of things that we can we can help you know support a person into these other very unique spaces of attachment and love and connection that may allow them to release some of the intensity of the pain that they're feeling. And then what's left is the love that they had for this child. Right. But I think that what we're saying is that this is a, you know, perinatal death is a really unique space of loss that also very often doesn't have ritual attached to it right, doesn't have a communal communal ritual attached to it, doesn't have religious or spiritual practices attached to it. So they're kind of left flailing and nobody wants to talk about dead babies, right? Nobody wants to talk about babies dying. It's too overwhelming and frightening. You know, I jokingly think that my children will, not so jokingly, think that my kids are going to end up in therapy because I talk about dead babies. You know, they're like, mom, we're, you're, you're crazy. Like, we're, we're all twisted that we talk about these things at the dinner table. And I laugh about it, but I, I also acknowledge that, yeah, this is weird, right? But yeah. I, I mean, I hope that there's some, there's some healthiness to it as well. I don't yeah. know. I'm sure I'll be ending up the I'll end up paying for the therapy, but in the long run, you know, there is, there is an absence of normal 
around the death of a child. And it isn't normal, right? Like you yeah. said, the normal course of events is we bury our parents. The yes. not abnormal course of events is burying a child. So many of those things also resonate for me, um, not the least of which is that our dinner time conversations sound a lot like yours because, of course, I've been working <laughs> in death and grief and trauma for a long time. And so the concept mm -hmm. of death is often a, a conversation in our house. And to me, that's a piece of how we how we begin to understand that grief is always with us and that grief is with us uniquely for each unique loss is by having those conversations and making yeah. safe spaces and making it okay to talk about the fact that the baby died, right. that it's, it's real, it happened. Right. And so we can talk about it because if we, if we don't talk about it, then the pain compounds. Absolutely. You know, I found it, found it so fascinating, even as a therapist, when my grandfather passed away, uh, actually just a year ago, and he was 97, almost 98, he would have been 98 in just a few weeks after his, um, his date of death. And I remember someone saying to me, like, oh, I'm so sorry for the loss of your grandfather. And I said, yeah, thank you so much. And, you know, he really lived a long, healthy life. We were very close. He really had. And then I went, wait a second. Why can't I just say, I really appreciate it. And it's really sad. Right. Like, yeah. why do I always have to like caveat it with like, it's not as terrible as you're thinking because he was aged, he was sick, he was, you know, fill in the blank. Instead yeah. of just sitting as a therapist, like I caught myself going and I'm sad and I miss him and I, I'm so sad he's gone. And to give myself permission to say that instead of trying to wrap my grief up into this pretty, you know, pretty uh, wrapped present and bow on top. Um, yeah. But the culture we live in, the, the society, the sociological experience of death is please don't make it so terrible. And please don't make me have to feel really, really, really uncomfortable with the pain that you're experiencing. <laughs> and that was exactly what I did. I tried wrapping it up in a bow until I backed off and I went, yeah, it's really hard. He was wonderful. And I will miss him terribly. Yeah. Right? And that, that kind of conversation where we can say, yes, this is hard, and I miss the person who died, and I'm having trouble adjusting, allows grief mm -hmm. to be what it is for the time that it needs to be. And when we can share those things, then we start talking about the fact that, you know, um, 20 years later, we're still going to miss that person, we're still going to feel pangs of grief, they're going to probably feel a lot different after 20 years than they do yeah. in those first months, but they're still yeah. going to exist. And that's where we come I back think, to that piece that grief yeah. doesn't end. Yeah. And I think that what, one of the things that I've learned so profoundly in my perinatal loss work is that when parents allow themselves permission to grieve without trying to force the process of, quote, moving on, they do so much better in the long run. So what I see is this trend and this pressure to like get over it, right? To move, move, just let you got to move over. You got to get over it. You got to move on. And when even sometimes self-imposed, this idea of like, I just need to get back to myself. And sometimes that actually looks like I need to get pregnant again because the only way I'm going to ever be okay is if I get pregnant again and have another baby. As if that child will fill this deep empty space that's in my arms. And what I have learned is that when, when parents give themselves the space, and frankly, it usually is more the mother than the parent, than any of the partnered parents. But when I have learned, what I have learned is that when that person 
gives gives herself permission to sit in that space of sadness and grieve, they, they do better in the long run. It doesn't explode like a volcano after the birth of the next child, because I've seen that too, right? Yes. So they come to the, sometimes you'll see it where they, I'm fine. I'm really bad. I, the only way I'm going to be better is if I have a baby. They have their baby and then all of a sudden it erupts in pain and it can really erupt in postpartum mood or anxiety disorder. All of a sudden you're mixing in grief and disrupted hormones and you have like this cataclysmic event that really could have been prevented if parents had given themselves permission to just stop and do the grief work. Mm-hmm. You know, on a very practical level, one of the things that I talk with my clients about, which is so interesting to me, is they'll say, well, what, what does that look, what does that actually mean? You know, beyond talking to you, the therapist, like, what does that mean? And I'll, you know, especially as they move, move along in their, in their path, sometimes women will say to me, I, you know, I'm finding myself like just needing time at night to cry. And I have had multiple women specifically who have said to me, so I go into my closet and I climb underneath my clothing. I crawl under my closet and underneath my long hang clothing. And I just curl up in a fetal position and then I cry. And then I come back out and I rejoin my life. And then I go to bed and I take a shower. And, and I do that a couple nights of the week. And it's just like, that's my space. And it's funny because I actually saw it a few months or years ago now in an Oprah magazine. Some woman, a famous actress of some form or another said, and my favorite place to go and to just be by myself is in my closet under my clothing. So there must be something about <laughs> that space but like do I give myself permission to yeah. go there emotionally and physically I have yeah. one woman who says to me when I sit on the right side of the couch I'm in my grief space when I sit on the left side of the couch I'm in my joyful space and so sometimes she'll say to me I don't want to sit on the right side of the couch but I know I need to mm. and I think that that's somebody who has done a lot of work and really come to terms with her pain in a way yep. that she can begin to acknowledge, I need to sit on the right side of the couch a little today. Yeah, and I think that is so important because what we don't acknowledge can come back and have so much power over us in so many painful yeah. ways. And when we can acknowledge it and be with it, um, that's really powerful. And permission is such a good word for that. I love the idea of having a space on the couch that fits each space emotionally. Um, and, yeah. uh, and I think, you know, the idea of um, curling up in the closet is, uh, is such an interesting one too, but it sounds like it's, there's, there's quite a lot of um, experience with that. Yeah. And it's probably, probably because it's a, it's a place where mom can get privacy <laughs> for one thing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's true. You know, I once mentioned it to, right. I, I once mentioned it to somebody who said, you know, it's almost like womb like, like it's almost like the actual fetal experience. But I thought that was interesting. I don't know that I took it to that extreme, but I think it's just a matter of like, it's the one place they're not going to find me at yes. nine o'clock at night. <laughs> yes. Where did mom go? I don't know. You know, That's right. That's like, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I, and I sometimes call that idea of holding um, time for grieving. I, I actually just invite people to consider having a dedicated grieving time, um, yeah. where they can just be sad and cry, or you know, be with the photos or the memories or whatever that they need to in order to allow themselves to feel the pain of the loss. It's real, Absolutely. and it's, it's so important to give it its time. And especially because I think sometimes that helps to contain it for people who feel very chaotic in their grieving. They are seeking containment, not, not that they should 
quiet it or, or minimize it at all. But sometimes they feel like I need a way to contain this because otherwise it's hitting me at all angles. And I have so many responsibilities that I maybe have to take care of perhaps as other family members that need attending to. So when we talk about that and she identifies, let me, if I could hold it together till 9 PM and that gives me, and then I can let it out. Like that has been kind of a strategy that has helped people give themselves that space, that time, that permission in a way that allows them to not go there during board meetings, during office work, Mm -hmm. during parenting other children. So that Mm -hmm. can help them kind of find that pathway that feels a little, that feels authentic to their own experience. Mm -hmm. Well, it strikes me that it is, it's, it, it, it satisfies that loyalty conflict in some regards um, because they don't, they don't have to feel like they're going to be disloyal by going about the business of their daily life because they've made time in their daily life and part of their schedule is their grief. And so they don't have that loyalty conflict the same way as if they are trying to just set their grief aside completely. Exactly. And they shouldn't, right? You and I both agree with that. Like they, Mm -hmm. they don't need to set their grief down. There's no obligation or time limit to grieving. They are, they have permission to hold on to and to experience and to really sit in their sadness for whatever they need and Mm -hmm. to know that it will block, it will blossom at different points in their lives, different triggers, different life experiences, but it's theirs. It belongs to them. They, they've earned that horrific and sad, you know, loss, but they have earned the right to grieve this experience and to give them permission to do so in whatever way feels um, safe and healthy enough. And, you know, um, you know, and sometimes it has to be also socially acceptable enough, right. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way that works for them um, is really, is, is really a very powerful tool to, to figure out how to live life beyond the tragedy. Mm-hmm. And, and I also feel like that, that dovetails very nicely with this idea that, in fact, grief for anyone you love is lifelong. As long as you live, you will miss them in some way, in some form. And so thinking about bereaved parents in particular, you know, you are always the parent of that child that died, uh, whether you have other living children or not, um, there's always the absence of that child. And um, that that lasts your entire life through. It really is a, a disservice to people to say, you'll get over it. Absolutely. It undermines the, the preciousness or the value that that child held in that person's life. And I think, you know, I, the way I use it is like, there's always going to be that placeholder. That child will always hold its place in your family. They will always be the third child in the family. Whether you choose to tell other people about that third child will be your choice. And we do a lot of work around like, what do I tell the person in the grocery store who says, how old are all your kids or how many kids do you have? But, mm-hmm. you know, ultimately each person has to find what works for them in an authentic way. You know, so that, and, and, and it, you know, kind of differentiating between telling the grocery store clerk or telling a family member this information is going to be different. Telling somebody I work with versus, you know, the, the, the cashier who's just making conversation. But recognizing that it, really validating and acknowledging the role that that child will always have in this, in this family. That, that doesn't, just because they have a child that comes after or before, 
doesn't remove the place mark, that placeholder of this child in their family story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 similarly, I I talk to people a lot about the fact that they get to choose who they share that part of their story with, who they trust right. with it, who who's earned um, the opportunity to know about that part of their life. Um, and the cashier at the grocery store might not qualify depending on the circumstances. Right. Um, but that, but it's always their story. You know, Mm -hmm. it's always a part of them. Just like you talk about the placeholder that, uh, I talk about carrying, uh, the child in their heart instead of in their arms. What I also find just by the way, that's so interesting is that sometimes I think that people that we expect the most validation, support, understanding from, are not the ones that are able to give it to the to us in those moments of grieving. And we might actually find that the cashier at the grocery store is suddenly will say something to you that will be so profound and so supportive and so kind and give you that lean over and give you that hug that it will have come out of nowhere, this unexpected space of support that you may not even get from your own direct family. And I've seen that happen quite a bit. And I remember a woman telling me, as her child, she had a child that was considered non-compatible with life and she delivered and the baby was about, maybe about 22 hours old and the baby began to die. It was, he, he was in the dying process. And I remember she described to me that there was a woman that was cleaning the floors of the hospital. Her husband had just run home to grab something, not realizing that the death was so imminent and she was alone. And this very large Jamaican woman, as she describes her, who was singing and washing the floors of the hospital unit and she saw my friend and the woman turned to her and said, you look like you need a hug. And she walked right up to her and held her with mm-hmm. such intensity. And she said, from the Jamaican janitor, I, I learned this, that how incredible, how much I needed her in that moment. And there was this moment of connection and support and understanding that she probably couldn't have gotten from anybody else in that moment in time as she was alone at midnight, you know, in the hospital unit. So like <laughs> it can come from so many different places if we're open to it. Um, <laughs> and, and I think I find a lot of people have those kinds of stories, you know, these, these people who step in in those moments that are unexpected. Mm-hmm. And, and I talk about that um, a lot in terms of the idea that the landscape of your relationships change sometimes with oh, a yeah. death. And so sometimes the people that you thought would show up for you are just unable to, whether it's their own pain or uh, some of their own experiences, they just can't show up in that moment for you. And people that you would have never expected or didn't even know before are the people who throw you a lifeline or give you that hug or stay in the space with you because they have some capacity um, under whether it's because they have understanding or intuition or whatever it mm-hmm. is, they have the ability mm-hmm. to be present with you in in a, a unique way. And I think that's a lot what you're talking about is how Absolutely. how we we don't always know where that's going to come from. It can be quite surprising the people who understand grief and can be with us in it. So we know that we know that grief actually doesn't ever end, but that it definitely changes in time. And we know that there are unique ways to travel through grief, to carry it with you through life. Um, And uh, that permission 
to grieve and permission to carry it with you is so important because it allows you the space for something that really needs ex- its own expression. Absolutely. And I think just, you know, one kind of comment on that as well, that idea of giving permission, so necessary to do that for our, for others as well. So the giving permission is to myself, to the person who's grieving, but the giving permission also can come from others, right? So it can come from me saying to a dear friend of mine, you know, a good friend, oh, you know, take your time. There's no time limits. So asking about the child in six to 12 to a year to five years, you know, remembering the baby or the person that died, or especially when I've seen mothers who are supporting their adult daughters who have lost a child and making sure that those grandmothers really um, have recognizing the power that they hold in turning to their children and saying, you take whatever time you need and there's no rushing and really giving this adult children permission to do this grief as well. Mm-hmm. Like giving permission to others kind of creates that ripple of, 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 um, of support that, that uh, like honors the experience of grieving that everybody needs, has the right to have. Mm-hmm. Yes. And if, if we were able to do that in more ways for more people, we would probably have a lot more healthy grieving processes across our society. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Well, thank you for joining me today. It's been a wonderful discussion and I hope that our listeners are able to take pieces that work for them and, and, uh, and, and put them into some action in their own grief experiences. It's my pleasure. It's always, just, it's always good to find one of my deaf people. I know we're a little, we're a weird bunch, but boy, <laughs> it's such a, pri- it's such a privilege, like to be able to accompany another human being on this experience and knowing yeah. that we're not going to crumble. We're going to, we're okay to stand next to you beside you to witness your pain. And we're still standing. Mm-hmm. encouraging others, you know, encouraging other people to, to try it, to try to stand beside somebody in their grief and yep. it won't break you. It will make you stronger. Yeah. I, and I, I agree very much. It's an honor and a privilege to be able to walk with people for a little while when they're grieving and to yeah. kind of offer them some, you know, to shine a little light on the path that's ahead of them so that they can make their choices yeah. and, and take their own steps. One of the reasons that Grief Stories exist is to help offer that, the opportunity to learn about the power of doing that for for people in grief so that more people can do it. So, yeah, it's well, been it's a real really, pleasure. Really just wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Grief Stories podcast. I'm your host, Maureen Pollard. Please remember that grief is universal, but every person's experience of grief is unique. While our interviews are intended to help listeners feel validation and reassurance, we know that this story might be different from your own. Please visit our website, griefstories.org, for more stories of hope and healing.